My name's Tim. I, uh, I'm teaching pastor here. Get to unpack scripture on Sunday mornings with you all and enjoy, enjoy it. And uh, get often during the week, get to continue the conversation with you. And uh, we've been in a teaching series this morning, uh, well, this, this summer, spring and summer on the book of Acts. We're going to continue that today. Uh, before we get there, I just want to uh, share, this past week, I had the honor of being part of a wedding. Uh, Jonathan and Caitlin, many of you probably know them. They got married on Friday, uh, Oliveira now, and um, it was fun. I officiated it. And one of the really special parts for me personally was that Jonathan and Caitlin, uh, the Brian group, they've developed, they, they know our daughters well, our three girls. And so our three girls were the flower girls in the wedding. And so I'm up front there, and the, the time comes where the flower girls come down. And our youngest, Emmy, she, she walks down like a stoic soldier. She just, <laughs> just no basket or anything, just walk down the aisle. And then our, our middle child, was she was a little apprehensive about it. And so when she got to the front, she, she got up there and she had thrown the flowers out and then she took her basket. And I, I was like, hey, good job. And she holds it up to me and is like, look at this, dad. It's empty. I did it. And I was like, yeah, okay. Thanks. And then our oldest was very much... She did it exactly as instructed. So, you know, nice equal distribution of the petals, making sure they're covered everywhere, you know, just kind of, and uh, just, you know, a really special moment for me and my dad. You know, I'm standing up there watching these girls come down, and I'm, you know, thankful. I'm just proud. I'm thankful for them. I can't help but think about, you know, when, the day when they might walk down the aisle um, for their weddings, and then, you know, I try not to think about that, and... Uh, and I just, I felt profoundly grateful. I was just thankful. This sense of want, just thankful. I mean, for these three that are gifts, I, I did nothing to create or earn. or I mean, they just, they're gifts into my life. And, uh, and I just felt, I found myself feeling thankful. And I, and I, and I would think that um, all of us, uh, at different times of our lives, so we've had moments where we just felt just like we were thankful to something, someone bigger than ourselves. If you're a parent, I'm sure you have moments where you just feel this profound sense of gratitude. This, I need to say thank you to someone. If you've ever fallen in love, I bet you've, you've had this, these moments of just needing to say thank you to someone. If you've been out in creation, you, a sun, you know, you're on the beach and the sun is setting, you're at a mountaintop, and you just the, 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 the way creation can be spectacular, these moments we just feel this profound need to say thank you to someone. I think it's a very human experience, this sense of these gifts in our life that we just, so, I need to say thank you to someone. This morning, I want to, we're going to look at a scripture that deals with that idea, this, 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 this impulse that I believe all humans have at different times of our life, um, both at times to call out for help to someone, but also to say thank you to something or someone bigger. We're going to talk about how that gets directed at different times in history and, and the right and the true one that is meant to be directed to. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, uh, a chapter from the book of Acts, chapter 19. Uh, we'll get there in a minute. If you want to flip there now, you're welcome to. Acts is in, uh, to the right in your Bible. It's after John, before Romans. And, uh, but what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to take a chunk of time at the beginning of the teaching and set the stage historically, uh, really paint the picture historically what's going on, and then we'll get to the account written in Acts 19 and, and, and get into the story and see what it might speak to our lives today. So um, just by way of reminder, uh, the book of Acts, 
the, the goal of the book of Acts is about the early Jesus movement, and not just everything that happened, but specifically the book of Acts is, is telling the story of how uh, the Jesus movement went from a rural Jewish messianic movement in Galilee, how it went from that to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to Asia, to Europe, and to, to the center of the Roman Empire, Rome itself. It's telling that trajectory, uh, that, that account. And the, where we are in that um, account is we are, uh, we've been following this guy for a while now, uh, this leader in the early Jesus movement by the name of Paul. And Paul had been a, he had been a violent oppressor of Jesus' followers until he had this mystical encounter with Jesus and, begun, and he becomes a leader in the Jesus movement. And so we've seen in the, the story of Acts, Paul goes on several journeys around the Mediterranean world telling people about Jesus. And today we're, gonna, we're picking up with his third journey around the Mediterranean world. We have a map here uh, of his third journey. It starts in Antioch out in the east and uh, he heads west, and he gets to Ephesus, this major city in Asia Minor. That, that chunk of land today that we call Turkey, back then they called it Asia or Asia Minor. And uh, Paul comes to Ephesus, and he spends two years there teaching and preaching about Jesus. And so today we're, we're picking up with Paul in Ephesus towards the end of his two years in Ephesus. Now, I want to tell you about Ephesus. This is where I want to paint the historical picture. Ephesus, uh, Ephesus was one of the third or fourth largest cities in the Roman Empire, in the Mediterranean world at the time. Here's a picture of Ephesus. It's, there's a lot that's been excavated there, huge site. And, uh, you know, we've seen Paul go to these different major cities. We've seen him in Antioch. We've seen him in Philippi and Athens and Corinth. Ephesus is right up there as or if not more spectacular than any of those other cities. Third or fourth largest city, probably just behind Rome and Alexandria, maybe Antioch. I mean, 250 to 400,000 people, major city. And it was the largest city in that Asia Minor area. And so this major economic hub in Asia Minor. Now, in the Mediterranean world, really in much of the ancient Near East, uh, cities would often have patron gods or goddesses. Kind of the God who protected the city, or the goddess who protected the city. And Ephesus had that, and they took it to a whole nother level. The goddess of Ephesus was Artemis. And uh, Artemis, uh, all this worship was directed towards her. Artemis came out of Greek mythology. Here's a, uh, here's a, uh, a statue of Artemis. In, Greek, in the Greek mythological world, Artemis was this like virgin huntress. She was a hunter and a protector of women and a hunter and a protector of small animals. And so she was often seen with a bow arrow and a small animal. I don't know how that works. How do you, you're a hunter and a protector of small animals? I feel like that's a little duplicitous, but we'll let it go. Um, so, uh, so that was in Greek mythology. Well, in in um, Asia Minor, where Ephesus was, there's another goddess that had been worshipped for millennia. This great mother goddess, she's sometimes known as, uh, she's also known as Cabela sometimes. Here's an idol of Cabela. Hello there. Yeah, she's, there you go. So, this great mother goddess, I don't know what else to say about that. This great mother goddess that worshipped in this part of the world for millennia. So, what seems to happen in Ephesus is that Greek mythological idea of Artemis seems to mix with this great mother goddess worship to form a unique deity known as Artemis of the Ephesians. Here's a statue of Artemis of the Ephesians. She was like her this own unique manifestation of Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians. I got to meet Artemis of the Ephesians uh, this past springtime. Here, here I am. Um, she's <laughs> bigger. I, mean, I forgot my top hat, apparently. But she, uh, really, so Artemis of the Ephesians 
was a big deal in Ephesus. Uh, they had built a temple for her outside of town in Ephesus. This, this temple was one of the largest buildings in the world at the time. 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, 127 columns, each six stories tall. It was one of the largest buildings in the world. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so uh, there's, a, there's a, a second century BC poet, Antipater of Sidon, who was talking about the seven ancient wonders of the world. And Antipater says, he says, I've seen the pyramids in Giza. I've seen the hanging gardens in Babylon. I've seen the statue of Zeus. But, he says, when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. Yeah, I mean, it was one of these magnificent, this just a magnificent temple. Um, let's go, I, I think I go back, let's go back a slide to the slide. There's a temple um, in, uh, in Didyma. The temple to Artemis in Ephesians is destroyed today, but there's another temple that was just a little smaller, and this um, is the one uh, temple to Apollo in Didyma that, that would be a little smaller than one uh, in Ephesus. Can you see the size of the people there? I mean, this place would have been massive. And then we have an artist's rendition of what the, uh, the temple to Artemis um, in Ephesus would have been. I mean, this huge temple. Now, so, there's this, so they have this unique understanding of Artemis of the Ephesians, this particular manifestation of Artemis. And what happened over time was um, that the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians spread around the world. And so we found temples to Artemis of the Ephesians in 30 other places that throughout the world people worshipped Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and Ephesus was considered the guardian or protector, or the, the Greek word is neochorus, the guardian of Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesian worship. And um, so this was like the headquarters. And so people would come to Ephesus to worship her. They'd make pilgrimage there, particularly in the springtime. There's a big kind of Artemis worship festival. And people would make pilgrimage there all over the world. And when they came to Ephesus, what would they bring with them? Money. And so it was this, this economic driver. People would bring their money to Ephesus, uh, people would come there during the spring festival. People would often get engaged then, so they attached their marriage to Artemis worship. And so not only, uh, w- w- not only was Ephesus kind of the largest city in Asia Minor and this major economic hub, but all these pilgrims would come here and bring all this money. Now, all this money is flowing into Ephesus. Where do, where do you put all this money? Who do you trust in Ephesus? Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the, the temple to Artemis became a banking center. It was the major banking center in Ephesus, and because of that, it was the major banking center in Asia Minor. So all this money goes to Artemis' temple. And so some scholars say that Artemis' temple ended up owning like 70,000 acres of land, it owned multiple lakes and quarries and vineyards and herds and herds and herds. They would do loans. I mean, all this wealth concentrated in Ephesus and specifically at Artemis' temple. So that when Artemis, uh, when the Ephesians minted coins and they wanted to mint coins and show the world what they were about, what would they put on it? What do you see on the right there? What does that look like? Artemis in her temple. That's what that is. So this is a coin from like 42 AD, and this is what how they would present themselves uh, to the world. So just imagine, imagine you live in Ephesus. You live in Ephesus. You, uh, you're a woman, and you're going to give birth, and you know there's a high mortality rate for people uh, who give childbirth in this time. Who do you pray to? Who is the protector of women? Artemis. You pray to Artemis. If you, if you, if you survive childbirth, you have healthy children, who do you pray to? Who do you thank? 
you think Artemis. Because remember, she's the protector of women. The, the, she takes on that great mother, the nurturing um, characteristics from the great mother. You think Artemis. If, you're, if your business is doing well, who do you think? Artemis. If the city is prospering, it's safe. Who do you think? Artemis. This, all this, this religious devotion in the city is focused on Artemis. And now in Ephesus, like, like much of the Roman Empire, it was a religious a la carte system. You could worship a lot of different gods, but in Ephesus, at the top of the heap would have been Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the city that Paul comes to. Paul comes here, and uh, he starts teaching for two years. And we know the kinds of things Paul would have said when he moved into this kind of Greek religious milieu. Because we, we have examples of other times and places when he moved into these um, Greco-Roman religious environments and what he said. So I just want to give you an example of when he came teaching and preaching into this kind of religious environment and the kinds of things he said. So I'm going to read um, when he was in Athens and how he addressed um, the worshippers uh, there. This is what Paul says in Athens. Acts 17, 24. The Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So Paul goes into uh, Paul goes into a Greek kind of Greek religious environment. And what's he do? He says, "Well, there's a these these temples and idols. They're not even real, but there is a living God who has made everything and gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And in fact, Paul goes on to talk about how this God cares about good and evil and will bring a reckoning, a judgment in the end, and that this God desires to, to, to rescue people, to be in right relationship with people, and has sent his son Jesus, revealed himself in history that people might know him and be in right relationship with him. So what happens if Paul, with that message, goes to Ephesus for two years, telling everyone he can about this. What happens? Well, let's look at Acts 19 now and see how this unfolds. So we're going to be in Acts 19, beginning in verse About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way, just to remind us, is the name for the early Jesus movement. That's what they call themselves, the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends... That we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. 
And you kind of think that you wish Demetrius would have just stopped and thought about what he was saying at this point. But he says that God's made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon, the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Okay, pause there just for a second. So uh, what's, what's going on here? So Paul, he's been, he's been telling people about Jesus. And what's been happening, people are beginning, they are beginning to trust Jesus. They're coming to know the living God for themselves. And, and as always, when someone begins to trust Jesus with their life, there are economic implications for that. And in Ephesus, that looked like people no longer buying silver shrines to Artemis, no longer frequenting the temple. And so Demetrius, his livelihood was being threatened by this movement, along with what he, you know, the, the temple itself, he says. And so, so he riles people up, and they can't find Paul, apparently. Um, so they grab two of his apprentices, two of his friends, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they rush into the theater, it says. The, here's a picture of the theater in Ephesus. In Paul's day, it would have seated 25,000 people. I mean, imagine that thing just gets flooding with people. You know, it says the whole city was in uproar. They run into the theater, and they're chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then imagine if, you, imagine if you're Gaius and Aristarchus. You're, you're friends of Paul. And they're all angry at your teacher, and, and, but they can't find him. They're angry at your teacher and what he's been teaching, so they just grab you instead. And people are, they're your down front, people are holding on, and they're just chanting at you. They've been terrifying. Or imagine if you're Paul. You have instigated a riot. There are people rioting, but now they've grabbed two of your apprentices and dragged them away. What would you do? This is how Paul responds. Verse 30. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. He just, it's almost like the, the, his friends were like, there's a riot because of Paul. I know what he's going to want to do. Send, they send the message right away. You know, what I, you know what I mean? But, okay, question. Just a little audience participation. When you hear about Paul here, you think Paul is, shout out some fill in the blanks. Paul is bold. What else? Crazy. What else? Re- passionate. Yeah? Real? Real. What else? In love with God. Yeah. Courageous. Courageous. Willing, to die. Willing to die. I mean, he's ready. And he's, he's loyal to his God. He's loyal to his friends. And he's, he's got something to say. Even if it's 25,000 mad chanting people. Well, just give me a chance. I'll, I'm sure I can convince them. Kind of, he's optimistic, maybe. Um, so Paul says, let me go and talk to them. Now, this next, verse 32 is fantastic. This is one of my favorite. The assembly was in confusion 
Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> Is that brilliant? I, ah, yeah, what are you doing here? I don't know. Ah, yes. Okay, so this is what we need to do. I need your help in this. We need to reenact this. All right, we need to do this. So this, this is how we're going to do it. Okay, so I need this section in a minute. You are going to be the gr- chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All right, you're the chanters. Okay, the two middle sections, you are shouting, some people shouting one thing, some another. You shout angry things. Okay, keep it clean. And then you, you don't even know why you're here. Okay, so you act confused. So everybody stand up. All right, all right, everybody stand up. I'm going to count to three, and we're going to have ourselves a little riot. And I want to see, let's see how loud we can riot, okay? Okay, no chairs to the windows or anything. Ready? One, two, three. Ah, ah, yeah, what do I do? I don't know. Ready to go? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. No, stay standing. I need you to stay standing for a second. All right. Okay. So it says um, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. Uh, apparently, because the Jesus movement was a uh, it was birthed out of the Jewish movement, these the Jews were getting involved here, and they together they would have been against Artemis worship. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So we're going to all together now. Ready? All together. Maybe not two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. One, two, three. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Louder, louder. Great is Artemis of Ephesians. Louder, louder. Great is Artemis of Ephesians. All right. All right, you can sit down now. Good job. I wouldn't want to be around you all rioting. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian, or Neochorus, of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. See, the Roman Empire was more concerned about riot. They were really touchy about any uprising, anything that looked like that. So that's what he's worried about. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Question. Why does Luke tell us this account? It's a good, a good question to ask anytime you read any chunk of scripture. Why did, the, why did the author record this? Why did God inspire this to be written down? I mean, is it just because it's interesting? 
Why? I mean, there's, I mean, it is historically interesting. In fact, if you're interested in the historical accuracy of the New Testament, there's all sorts of stuff. Luke's knowledge of the, there's kind of official terms for city clerk and the officials of the province and the neocore, all this stuff that's very accurate. He, you know, it's historically accurate. But why, why is this included in Scripture? You remember the whole, the, the, the overarching point of the book of Acts is how this, this um, Jewish messianic movement moved to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to Asia, to Europe, to Rome. That's the whole arc of Acts. And I think Luke, he, he realized he can't tell that story. He can't talk about the Jesus movement being in Ephesus without talking about what happens when the Jesus movement and Artemis of the Ephesians collide. And I think his point, when they collide, is that Artemis is a lie. I believe Luke is telling the story in a way that contrasts the Jesus movement with Artemis of the Ephesians. There's several different contrasts that I think come out in this account. I think Luke contrasts the spokesman. The spokesman for Artemis is Demetrius. And the spokesman for Jesus here is Paul. And Demetrius is motivated by what? What do we see motivating Demetrius first in the, in the story? Money. And Paul, we see Paul ready to die for his God and his friends. I think he's, Luke's contrasting those. I think Luke is contrasting the followers, the followers of Artemis and the followers of Jesus. The followers of Artemis, they, are, they don't even know why they're there. They're rioting. In fact, the Roman officials say, you shouldn't even be doing this. On the other hand, the fathers of Jesus, Gaius and Aristarchus, they're innocent. And the Roman officials sigh, they say, Why? You, should, you should leave these people alone. I think he's contrasting the spokesman, the followers, and I think ultimately he's contrasting Artemis versus the living God of the universe. Art of this God that even Demetrius says is a statue made by human hands versus the God who is Lord of heaven and earth, who's made all things and gives all things, life and breath and everything else, the living God of the universe, who's revealed himself in history. See, I think Luke, Luke realizes that the people in Ephesus, that these religious longings that they had, these longings that when, when they were in trouble or when they, were, when, when they had hopes for the future, these longings to say thank you to someone, those were good and right and very human experiences. But, that, but directing them to Artemis was a lie. To try and say thank you to Artemis was a lie. And I think Luke wants us to understand that the living God of the universe, who's given us life and everything else, has revealed himself in history. In history, in the Hebrew scriptures, through the Exodus. In history, in the New Testament, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He has come to us. I think Luke is saying the living God is here. This is the one our hopes should be directed towards. This is the one our thank yous should be directed towards. Artemis is a lie. You know, we started this morning, and I asked you to think about the things that, the, the things in, that you, those thank you moments for you. I know we all have those, those moments of just gratitude. And I, I believe we also have moments of just of hope, of, of, of prayers of help. I hope this for the future. What do we do? Where, where do we point our, 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 our hopes and our thank yous? Where do we point those? Who do we call out to for help? Who do we call out to to say thank you? 
I believe Luke is calling us away from the lies, the lies that we should, the, uh, the lies that we should just think random luck. Random luck is a lie. Chance is a lie. Karma is a lie. Fate is a lie. I think Luke is saying there is a living God in the universe who has created all things, who gives us life and breath and everything else, whom our thank yous ought to be pointed towards, who our hopes ought to be pointed towards. He is the one worthy of worship. He has come to us, revealed himself in history. I want to give you us a minute um, just to reflect that question. What will you do with your hopes and thank yous? I want to give us a moment to reflect on what are the things you are hoping for. I mean, what are your prayers for help right now? What are the things you want to say thank you for? What are your prayers, your, your prayers of gratitude right now? And what I'd like to do is I've just felt that kind of the response to this sermon isn't three steps to do this week, but the rightful response to this scripture, what God is saying to us, is to enter into worship. To enter into worship of the true and living God. That we, a few moments ago, in, in jest, chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But I'd like to invite us as a community in truth, to worship with our hearts the true and living God of the universe, the one to whom our hopes and our thank yous are to be directed. So I'm going to give us, I'm going to pray, but let's, let's just, I'm going to have some silence in our prayer time uh, to reflect on those things, and then we'll enter back into worship together. So the worship team, you can come forward now. Father, Son, Spirit, every one of us in this room has hopes for the future, cries for help, cries for rescue. Father, Son, Spirit, every one of us in this room have things we're deeply grateful for, things we want to say thank you for. We believe by your spirit you are present to us now. Would you lead our hearts and our minds and our souls to you, that we can worship you, the true and living God of the universe. In your son's name, amen.